how many of you were alerted on the city that it was possible we were not going to be able to meet here in the building? How many of you were, all right, everyone that did not raise your hand, you need to be on the city, all right? Because it would be super awkward if you showed up and we weren't here. Here's why. We were actually wrestling through needing some final inspection pieces before we had occupancy. So as it stands right now as an update that we got clearance in this building, but the other three are still being inspected this week. So they did not give the final permanent approval, but we have freedom to meet in here. Praise God. Woo! And I also wanted to say this, that thank you so much for your patience as we're getting everything up and running. It's going to take us a couple more weeks to get this, uh, even this room outfitted a little bit more. I know that for right now, when we have the speakers on the stands, things are a little bit loud and we don't even have our speaker system running yet. Uh, some of the lighting and things like that are awkward, but everybody has been so kind and so patient and I just wanted to tell you, thank you very much for that. Our team is working round the clock to try to make sure everything gets done, but there's only so much we can do, especially with the occupancy uh, limitations that we've had. But I will tell you that our team is super diligent and we want to get in here just as much as you do. So that's only going to be launching as soon as we get final approval. All right, let's dive into some important pieces You know that throughout this year, we have been talking a little bit about how we act as a family and different things that I want us to all believe that that as we have communication with each other, as we spur one another on, as we uh, encourage each other to say, remember, this is truth. This is truth. I have some of that for you today. And I want to just give that a little bit to you as we start out. Um, First of all, I want to. I want to call out the elephant in the room. Why do we have a pastor come up and talk so long every weekend? Why are we up here constantly talking? Wouldn't it be far more effective to have us all just gather together and do practical ministry? Do we really need more people talking? Right? I mean, it's a fair question. And if anyone else asks it, I'm offended. But if I ask it, it sounds awesome. So I'll simply say this. Here's why. Because... Thoughts drive actions. I would much rather spend time talking about a paradigm of thinking, talking about concepts, giving you a matrix by which to navigate the rest of the world. I would rather tell you ways to think rather than what to think. Therefore, what we want to do when we come together is spend time in God's word and let him refresh our minds. If our minds are aligned with him, our actions will follow. If we just spend all of our time going out and trying to do good things, but our minds are not renewed, it's all going to fall flat. So we are not merely talking to talk. We are not merely talking for celebrity reasons. We're not merely talking for attraction purposes. We are talking to set a worldview that we might all know the heart of God, the nature of God and his word, right? That's why we do this. So each and every time that we get to come together and sit under God's word is a huge blessing. I want to share something out of God's word today and just a couple thoughts as we launch out and talk about who we are as a family. We are a family that believes 
that grace is foundational to true Christianity. You cannot have real Christianity without understanding the concepts of grace. You cannot live out true Christianity until you embrace the reality of grace. Now, what is it and what impact does it have? That's what I just wanted to share. Kenneth Boa, a a local um, disciple teacher, he said this. Grace teaches us that the most important thing about us is not what we do, but who and whose we are in Christ. I could close right there and that would be enough. Because if we could just receive that truth, our lives would be different. We are a family that recognizes and celebrates that your value is not in what you do, but that you are a child of God. I need you to lock that into your identity. You are not special because of what you accomplish. You are special because of what he accomplished. You are a child of God. And therefore, it does change everything. As a matter of fact, as I was kind of flowing this out, I thought about this. We don't do things for God. We can't. The bar is too high. We're not going to bring anything to the table that ultimately can bless God because the standard is perfection. He can only receive perfection. So we're not doing things for God. We don't need to sit around and go, what could I possibly come up with in my own head to do for God? That is not appropriate. But unfortunately, many of us are exhausted trying to figure out ways we can impress God. We simply will not. And you go, well, then what ought we to do? Two things. One, we must live out what he's already done. This is a paradigm shift in thinking. We are not thinking of things to do for God, but we are living out what he's already done. What does that mean? It means resting in it, appreciating it, worshiping him for it, enjoying it, utilizing it, submitting to it, right? We are believers and rescued, therefore... We actually get to live out a life fleshing out what he accomplished on the cross. The cross is such a significant deal that it changed everything about us. So the first thing we must do is spend our lives living out what he already accomplished. And then number two, we partner with him to allow his power to flow through us to get stuff done. If we can't bring it to the table, he can. So he wants us to partner. And it means, according to scripture, the closer we are to him, the more stuff comes out of us to be blessed. You understand what I'm saying? So we think, what am I supposed to do every day? You're supposed to be close to the Lord and let him flow out of you. Apart from him, you can't do anything. But if you are connected to him, the Bible says you will have much fruit. So we must be obsessed with being near our Lord. And that way, our life pours out appropriately. If that is the case, what do we do with sin? So we've been talking about grace, 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 and it says that God gave it to us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. As a matter of fact, everything about us is living out something he gave to us freely because he loves us. But what do we do with sin? We all realize we're still pretty messed up, yeah? I mean, there's stuff going on that's just not right. 
the way we treat each other, the way we treat ourselves, the way that we act to God, the way that we put other gods before him, stuff like that, right? There's a lot of messed up stuff. So what do we do with that? Well, first of all, we need to flip the scenario in our minds. Some of us still have not done this. So I need you to walk through this with me. We are not sinners because we do bad stuff. I need us to understand that because a lot of us are like, man, I'm really a bad person. I've done blah, 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 right? That is not correct. We do the bad things because we are sinners. That's a flip. That's very important for us to understand. Why? Because if we think of it the other way around, we'll spend our lives doing sin management. And that's not appropriate. We do bad things because our nature was wrecked. We do bad things because the core is wrong. What's so awesome about grace is God went in and did the core work. And for those who have surrendered to him, for those who have submitted to him, for those who have been saved by him, it says that we are born again with a new nature. That therefore it says... That God did the impossible is he took out our heart of flesh and made us partakers of the divine nature. In other words, he completely flipped it over and said, now you are new at your core. So first of all, there's a big division between those who have a new nature and those who don't have a new nature. Right? But as we are Christians, we're going, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, pastor. I have a new nature. I am rescued and saved and I'm still screwed up. Okay, amen. Yes, you are. All right. I can see that from here. All right, me too. All right. So what's wrong with us if we have a new nature, if our core has been made right, if we have been forgiven, if we have been cleansed, if we are New in all ways. Behold, I am making all things new. If truly we have been reborn in a totally different way, why are we still struggling so much? Because we are wrestling with patterns of behavior. We're wrestling with systems of this world. We're wrestling with sinful habits. We're wrestling with our outer self still being sin-ridden. We are inside renewed restored cleansed and clean but we're having a really hard time breaking that out and fixing the outside amen Amen? this is why it's so critical to work from the inside out if things are not right between us and the lord it doesn't matter how much we're doing right on the outside we have to work from the inside out That is very different than I must just be a better moral person. There's a couple truths that we need to lock in. This is one of those key ones. All right? The last thing that I'll say. It would be one thing if we were on our own in this endeavor. Hey, man, I need you to just fix some stuff in your life. I need you to let go. I need you to hand off. I need you to release. And that's what a lot of Christianity is. It's God going, hey, I fixed that. Can I take that out? No, don't touch that. That's what's causing our problem is that he did all this intense work inside, but we're, we're, we love our familiar dysfunction. We like our little pacifiers that are damaging. We like all these sinful habits and behaviors that Jesus said, whoa, 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 I set you free from that. And you go, but I like it. So he's constantly going, you've been, the chains have been broken. I would like you to walk away now 
and we're not walking away. That's causing a lot of the tension. If you were in that challenge by yourself, we'd be doomed to not get anywhere, but you're not. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to us and he's more interested in our growth than we are. Therefore, it says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it because he's better than we are. He, amen. Yeah. He is greater than our sin, greater than our weakness, greater than our failures, because he's the one that will move us forward to be more like the son, Jesus Christ. We're not alone in this. That means the end will be glory. And we just need to take hope in that. Praise God. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take out our Bibles. Let's take out the handout sheets that was given to us at the front door and we can begin. We are in part 11 of our B. Uh, whoa, I almost did it again. We are in part 11. Whoo, stuck in my head in our God meets world series. All right, let's pick the right series. Part 11 in the God meets world series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to walk us through chapter seven. If you would go ahead and turn to page 556. Chapter 7, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1. But I'm going to tell you a story and draw your attention to the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. Let me just tell you a story. About 15 years ago, I heard Dr. Tony Evans. He is a minister down in San Antonio, Texas. Brilliant teacher, super funny guy, just all around great pastor and speaker. And I heard him tell a story. I never forgot it. He said this. He said, I live in an older house. And in that house, our walls are made of plaster. He said, one day in our bedroom, a crack appeared on the wall. He said, so we called out somebody that works with plaster, and we said, hey, we got a crack in our wall, can you fix it? So he came in, he plastered in the crack and over the crack, and then painted it, and you couldn't even tell that it had ever been there. He said, about a week later, the crack re-showed up. And I'm thinking, man, you're lame at your job. I paid you to fix the crack. The crack's back. So he came back in. He filled it back in. He painted over it and everything was good. A month later, not only did it come back, but a whole bunch more came. And that's when they realized the professional came in and said, you don't have a wall problem. You have a foundation problem. And until you fix that foundation, you're always going to have cracks in your walls. It's the, uh, it's the unsettling deep down that's causing all these cracks. I could paint them all day long and they're just going to keep showing up. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. If the foundation is wrong, what you build will never be right. If the foundation is wrong, what you build will never be right. And this is indeed the problem in the world. Is that Jesus said you can either build on the rock, which is on Jesus Christ and his principles, or you can build on the sand. If you build on the sand, it's going to move on you. So it doesn't matter how successful or beautiful or powerful another structure is made. If it's not founded on Jesus Christ, it's going to get shattered. It's going to fall down. But are we building on completely Jesus alone or are we adding stuff to it? Right. So we're like half on the rock, half on the sand, and we keep wondering why things keep crumbling out from under us. If our foundation is not right 
everything you build will be wrong. And I think that ultimately is where the passage is going to go. But let me give you a couple of disclaimers about chapter 7. First of all, upon first pass through, I had no idea what the guy's talking about. And here's why. The analogies are weird. So if you go, man, that was an awkward analogy, I know. The reason it's awkward is it sounds awesome in Hebrew, sounds stupid in English. Okay? In Hebrew, there's all these word plays and everybody's being witty. Well, that's awesome for you. However, we're reading it and it just sounds dumb. Okay? So as I go through these analogies, you go, wow, did it really have to be like that? He could have just said, I get it. The other thing that's interesting is chapter 7 makes a big shift in the book. It used to be kind of big themes. Now he goes into Proverbs mode where he starts firing off on all this truth. The way I kind of pictured this is here's a guy super bummed out about life. His head's hung over a drink and he's telling you everything he sees in life. And you're like, man, you're negative. Yeah, he's really negative. All right? So when we read through this, we need to understand he's making these comments through wisdom, but ultimately it's not God's final word on the situation. All right? This is a man processing through. We're supposed to understand his principle and figure out if it applies to our lives. Got that? All right, let's begin together. We begin with the first one, chapter 7, verse 1. A good name or good reputation is better than precious ointment. Okay, I don't know how many of you are big on ointment. It matters back then, and here's why. Not a lot of running water, not a lot of bathing, not a lot of stuff like that. They would use ointment for everything. And basically it was the, I can look shiny, so it looks like I showered. I totally didn't shower, but I can look like I showered, right? So they would put on ointment and oil on their face, and and they would also perfume it, and so it was kind of like a cologne, kind of like a deodorant, right? And then they had some that were just straight-up perfume that were super expensive, so it became a luxury item. And so he said, wait, 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 even if you had a ton of expensive stuff that made you look good... A good reputation is better. It makes you look better than that. Would you agree? I mean, are there not beautiful packages of people in this world and their insides are garbage? And you're looking at them going, I can't fully respect you because as wonderful as you look on the outside, it's vacant on the inside. Bummer. He said, you know what? We got to watch that. Where do we need to put all of our attention. We need to live purposefully so we can have a good reputation and a good name and spend more energy than just trying to be beautiful on the outside. Does that make sense? And then he said this, this is kind of weird. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. Huh? What? No, 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 no. Okay. Because here's why when we have a birthday and we're like, woo, new baby boy, new baby girl. Yeah. We have all these like big showers and all this stuff. But when someone dies, we're not like, yeah, woo, another one down. Okay. Nobody's doing that. That's weird. Okay. Please don't do that if you are doing that. (laughs) So what does he mean that the day of birth is better than the day of death? Now, maybe he's just negative guy who's like, you know, in a world that's so hard, man, at least that's over. Okay. Is that his attitude? Is that really, maybe that's what he's saying, but I think there's a bunch more to it on why this is so true. Check this out. 
for the righteous, death is shifting from one type of glory to a greater type of glory. Not at birth, at death. For the wicked, it's a stopping of the hemorrhaging of wickedness. It shuts it down because God is being defied as long as they're alive. So maybe from a bigger picture, that is true. But think about it also from this perspective. If he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, then you are more complete when you die than when you're born. Wow, that's intense, right? How about this one? If all things work for the good, then when you die, all things are good. Does that make sense? And if the promises of God are accurate, that he's making you into the image of Jesus, then you look more like Jesus in your death than you do in your birth. Jesus' birth was awesome. His death was even more glorious. Would you agree? And it says that for Christians, to live is Christ, to die is gain. So maybe he's right. Maybe when you're born, you're born with promise, but when you die, you die fulfilled. Maybe when you are born, we're about to see what God does, but when you die, we celebrate what God did. You understand what I'm saying? So for the believer, it is a transference to the greater, to a better place, to a more perfect place, to a place that you were originally built for. So yes, the day of death is a celebration greater than even the day of birth. All right, let's move to verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning, that's where someone has passed away, than to go to the house of feasting, which is a party house. For this, death, is the end of all mankind, and the living needs to pay attention, lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. All right, I need to explain this one because it just goes against the Lance groove, all right? Let me just say that, okay, I am a dude that loves laughter. Laughter is a massive deal to me. Now, there are all all personalities like laughter, but there's certain personality types that need laughter to survive. I'm one of those. If I do not laugh for a certain amount of time, my spirit is crushed. I use it to de-stress. I use it to process. I use it for everything. So when you go, Lance, now trust me, if you lived with me, it's irritating. You would be like, Lance, we're in a serious conversation. No, I know we're in a serious conversation. I need, it's so serious to me, I need to laugh to blow off some steam or I'm about to freak out on you. Right? So we do like serious business meetings and I'm cracking a joke and you're like, oh, come on, dude. I'm doing it because that's how I process So I love laughter. I think laughter is very, very healthy. I think that it's significantly important. So this guy coming in going, no, 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 no. Sadness, way better. I'm like, no, it's not. But he's right. Here's why. Context. Remember what he's looking for. This whole book is on the premise of, is there anything in this world without God that we can gain? He's looking for gain. He's not looking for health. He's looking for gain. How do we advance forward, especially in the area of wisdom? If that's what he's looking for, then he's absolutely right. Why? Because laughter is more of a release, whereas sorrow teaches you lessons. 
You've learned more in bad times than you have in good times. You know that's true. You still learn some things in good times, but bad times make you live in light of eternity. When you walk into a funeral, it, for a moment, makes everything more serious. Because you're going, whoa, 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 life is short. Wait, I need to take this seriously. I need to grow up, whatever it is. So if you're looking for actual gain, sorrow is a better teacher than just laughter. Make sense? All right, good. Yep, three of you, it did. Okay, good. I I just have a way with people where like in a crowd of a thousand, I, I minister to three. Praise God. All right, verse five. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke and correction of the wise than to hear the song and thoughts of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is just waste, vanity. Here's all he's saying. I would much rather have somebody that is wise, that I trust and respect, speak into my life correction than just constantly spending time with people just talking just laughing, just screwing around. I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not learning anything. He said, just like the way that we throw thorns to get a fire started, there's all this crackle and pop and noise and flash and flame, and but there's no long heat. There's no benefit from it. Man, that's like all my friends that are out there just screwing around going, hey, do you want to hang out with me and just do nothing and all that stuff? He said, you know what? I got a lot of that. I don't need that. I want to move forward. And that only happens from a different sort of person. Then he says this, verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Okay, here's what he means. He keeps telling you, be wise, be wise, be wise, be wise. But that doesn't make you bulletproof. There's still openings for the enemy to get to you. One of them is constantly living in injustice. Okay, Even a wise person has their snapping point. When you live under something that feels unfair for a long period of time, the enemy gets a foothold to make you bitter. And your wisdom doesn't seem to help you out there. It shifts from a wisdom issue up in your head down into a heart issue of just disappointment. And when you grow bitter in your heart, you're done. The enemy has full access to you. He said, and then you also can mess yourself up. If you're wise and you're moving forward in business and you see a way to take a shortcut, like get a, give a bribe and it worked out for you, you're going to be tempted to keep doing that. And that's going to cause a compromise and that's going to cause a slippery slope and you're going to lose your integrity and then you're not wise at all. In his day and age, like many parts of the world, bribery was a common everyday occurrence. It's how business operated. That doesn't make it right. You understand what I'm saying? You go, well, that's just how my business is. Well, then you're not allowed to be in that business. And he's like, well, everybody's doing it. I know everybody's doing it, but you can't be doing it. That's the difference if you're a Christian. So he's going, listen, I know it's easier. It's just not right. So he made an adjustment. Then he says this, verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Okay, two things we need to know about that. Number one, patience is wisdom. 
Why? Because no one knows how it's really going to turn out. If you pop off with your opinion too early, you look like a fool. Okay? There's so much of that in us. We want to give full vent to our opinions, and then they turn out to be wrong. Every time that you burst out like that and say some dramatic thing, and then it doesn't actually occur like that, you look foolish and you lose respect. Why would we pop off like that? Because some of us, the second point, are way too angry inside. And I just want to be serious for you for a moment. Your anger is killing you. Why are you so frustrated? What is it? Well, Lance, you don't know my childhood. All right. All right. You're right. I don't. But the Lord does. And just saying that things were bad doesn't fix it. You actually have to fix it. Well, I don't know how to fix it. I know. That's why you need help. Because... Now, this is where I'm going to joke around because I have been in this place. Have you ever been so angry at somebody that even their breathing bothers you? You're just like, oh, you breathe so loud, right? (laughs) That's messed up, right? They still need to breathe. (laughs) They can't stop it, (laughs) right? But there's some of you that live like that every day about everything. Everything that goes wrong you're mad about and you're always blowing up that is an indicator something's wrong with you down inside you should not be that angry so if it is how do we heal it how do we fix it because if little things are causing you to explode you're not right so let's begin to work on that amen amen all right it says this I think this one's kind of fun. Verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. That means it's super dumb to say the glory days. There are no glory days. No way, man. Back in college, glory days. No, you were complaining back then. You're complaining right now. As a matter of fact, the complaint is pretty consistent. No, 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 I really liked it back. No, you only like it in retrospect. What if right now are the glory days? What if you find out in 20 years life is so difficult, you look back to today, and you're like, man, everything was cake. Then why are you complaining right now? Right? The whole business about the glory days means you have a bad memory. You're not remembering it right. Okay, let me give you an example. So, for example, do you all have a favorite era? There, there are some of you that are like, I love the medieval period. I love whatever it is, right? Some go the roaring 20s and the high society. And some of you are like, man, I love reading about this period in history. Everybody, if you have any history in you, has a favorite era. My favorite era is the 50s. I love the 50s. There's a certain level of honor. There was a certain level of respect. There was a certain level of uh, how everything kind of operated. And there was pride in all kinds of things. Right? I love so much stuff about the 50s. Well, that is until you look at it realistically. Why? Because in the 50s, women were treated like garbage. In the 50s, racism was rampant. In the 50s, everybody smoked themselves to death. In the 50s, all kinds of corruption was going on. So what part of the 50s do you want to talk about? Because we keep going, glory year. No. Depends on who you were and where you were at. 
collectively, there was all kind of messed up stuff in the 50s. You understand what I'm saying? So when we look back and we keep looking, living in the past, you're not remembering it right. Because that day was hard too. Yeah? So shouldn't we live for today? All right, keeps moving forward. He says this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Okay, simply put, he said this. In this life under the sun, money and wisdom protect you. He's being super practical. He said, if you can marry those two, awesome. Why? Because they have a certain amount of shielding you from the harsh realities of life. If your house gets wiped out by a hurricane and you have the money to rebuild it, you are somewhat shielded from the harsh reality of being homeless. You understand what I'm saying? So he's going practical on everybody. He said, in the same way, wisdom will shield you in this life. You don't make stupid mistakes. You don't walk into pitfalls, stuff like that. He said, both those protect you. If at any point you can match those two in this life, you've got a lot going for you. Then he says this, verse 13. Consider the work of God. Consider his big plans. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? What do you mean crooked? Meaning altered. Well, who determines what is altered? Us. Here's what it means. Let's say things aren't as you like them in your life. And you think something's wrong. Well, this is messed up. I'm in a bad season. Are you? Or is your perspective just messed up? Here's what I mean. Lance going through a rough time. Man, we lost our home. The recession. We've had a hard time rebuilding. So that's what? That's bad? Well, yeah, it's bad. My whole family's been suffering. All right? So you would say that's crooked, right? It's not straight. It's not easy. It's not the way you want it. Right. Okay, but what if God looks at it different? What if God realized that you, as the head of your household, had become so arrogant in your heart that you were walking away from him, and he hit a big flush sound and took everything away, and now suddenly you're back in church? What's better, you being arrogant and successful and away from God or you being lowly and being with God? Here's the point. If God wants to make something different than what you want, it may look crooked to you, but he needs it that way. I know your life's not going the way you want it. It's not supposed to. It's supposed to have twists and turns because God knows how to work with those. Here's also what he said. Verse, verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. Pause. Some of you just came to church for that. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Why? Because some of y'all are Eeyores and everything is wrong with everything. Okay. If God does something super nice to you, you're supposed to go, woohoo, right? You're supposed to enjoy it. Some of you, I'm like, hey, you got a brand new home. Yeah, but it's brown. Okay. <laughs> Paint the stupid house, right? Man, here's a wad of money. You realize money's the dirtiest thing on the planet. It's dirtier than the toilet seat. It's dirtier than the floor. It's dirtier. Okay. 
you guys, what is wrong with you? Okay, stop it. If God gives you a gift and things are going well, how about, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. No, how about we just go, yeah, today is a good day. I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to feel good about my life. All right. Some of us need that because just when God does give you a present, it's not very big. Okay. When God gives you a present, you say, thank you. And it was to make you smile. If you don't smile, it doesn't work, all right? So he said this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, when things are tough, consider this. God has made one as well as the other, so that men may not find out anything that will be after him. God keeps it moving because ultimately he knows the plan and we don't. Make sense? All right, then he says this. Verse 15, he's kind of reflecting over his drink on life. He said this, In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's something that bugs me. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. What does that mean? Bad guys are losing, good guys are winning. Really? What an awfully ignorant view. For being Mr. Wise, you sure miss this one. Why? Because that only is the case in this life. If you consider the afterlife, that cannot be true. And isn't the afterlife way longer than this life? So do bad guys really get away with everything and thrive? No, they don't. So just by thinking that reveals that you don't have a long view of life. I know it's frustrating for now, but it's not forever. Then he said this, verse 16, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked and sinful, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. What's that mean? Here's what it means. In this world, there's a lot of, man, I'm going to be the best moral person. I'm going to do all the right things. And then you become self-righteous. And then there's the whole pursuit of knowledge and wisdom. I'm going to be the smartest. I'm going to be the best. I'm going to make sure I have everything nailed down. And you're just out there killing yourself, trying to be the best. Just stop. Then there's people that are like, well, I'm going to be wicked. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be foolish. Stop. Listen, what he wants is that we would just do what God has us in. We don't need to be so extreme in trying to be something that we're not. If you end up in self-righteousness, you wrecked it. If you end up as a know-it-all, you wrecked it. If you end up as wicked, you wrecked it. If you end up as a fool, you wrecked it. Can't we simply be with the Lord? I think that was his call. And, And then he says this, verse 19. He said, don't get me wrong, wisdom has perks. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Work smarter, not harder. I once heard it said like this. A sharpened axe is better than big muscles. Would you agree? Uh, You can chop all day long with that. That ain't going down. I may not be as strong as you, but my axe is sharpened. I'll get that tree down. Then he says something pretty powerful in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay, so some of you came to church for this. Ready? You're the one that keeps saying, I am a good person. No, you're not. (laughs) Hate to burst your bubble. 
But here's the deal. Your bar's just too low. You're not a good person. Yeah, I am. I do blah, 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 blah. The standard is perfection. You got nothing. Well, I'm nice to people. Well, I'm sure Hitler was nice to somebody. (laughs) Don't play this game with me. I will go nasty on you. Well, I'm more on... The standard's Jesus. Now let's play this game again. Are you a good person? No, you're not. That's why we need the grace of God. You understand? Then he says this. This is a real practical verse 21. This is good for me. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Oops. What does he just mean? Don't listen to your employees too close. There's stuff you don't want to hear. Because they're talking about you like you're talking about your boss. Make sense? And you justify it in you. Yeah, but my boss is an idiot. No, they're saying the same thing. Right? So be careful if you always want to lean in and know. Um, one of the things that uh, we tease my oldest daughter about is she has like sonar, like this radar thing of eavesdropping, right? She's a little kid that when she walk out of the room, she'd sit on the stairs and listen around the corner, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, there's a cost to that. You'll hear stuff you don't want to hear. Make sense? We just got to be careful on that one. And it's also a shot across the bow about how you're talking about other people, right? All right. And then he said this, verse 23, all of this stuff I have tested by wisdom. I put it through my experiment and I said, I'm going to be wise, but not really. It was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who, who can find it? I turned my heart to know and to search out and seek wisdom and the scheme of things, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And basically I'm just empty. What is he trying to tell you? You don't have to go through the experiment of trying to figure everything out. You don't need to be little emo guy sitting in the corner with angst and crying about everything and trying to figure it out. Guess what? There is no ultimate meaning in this world without Jesus. That's your answer. Wherever you're going to go, you're going to go, life's not fair. All right, now what? You're absolutely true. It is not fair. But we got to move forward. And that's what he's trying to encourage. Then he closes out with these passages. And I find something more bitter than death, something super frustrating. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, meaning traps, and whose hands are chains or fetters. He who pleases God escapes her by good choices, but the sinner is taken by her. Who's he talking about? Well, we can play the Proverbs route, and it's sexually that there's some types of people that lead others astray that way but i would like to expand it a little bit more i want you to be careful on who you're hanging out with and who your influences are here's why you're going to become like them if you're around a bunch of negative people all the time it's going to mess with your head watch your environment we are environmental beings who we hang out with bleeds into us If you hang around with all materialistic people that only talk about stuff and money and everything else, it will make you materialistic and you don't even see it happening. If you're around someone that all they want to talk about is gossip, it's going to soil your spirit. Watch who we're hanging with. If you only have people that don't know the Lord around you, it's very hard to remain passionate for the Lord. Let's just be wise about that. And then we finish off the passage with just something delightfully 
offensive. Let's move on. Verse 27. Behold, this is what I found, said the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. He's looking for wisdom, and he says, one man among a thousand I found that was wise, but a woman among all these? Nope, not one. (laughs) See, this alone I found, that God made man upright and good, but they found out many schemes to distort it badly. All right, this is where you're going, man, no, wait, did he really just say that? Men are losers, women are worse. Is that really what he just said? Yep, that's really what he said. And you're like, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Is that what God thinks? No, that's what negative man thinks. And he's being practical because here's the thing. It is likely that this author is looking for wisdom and he's looking for it in a certain way and he's looking through education. Do you remember that in his day and age, women were shunned from education? Women weren't even allowed to hang out with the men. They weren't allowed to be trained up. They weren't allowed to have any of this stuff. Everything was kept away from them. So how in the world were they supposed to deal equally when they weren't given an equal shot? So was he really saying that? Yeah. Was he being chauvinistic? Absolutely he was. But here's what you need to balance it with, ladies. This same type of wisdom literature in the Old Testament not only speaks highly of women, Solomon himself, who had a really weird interaction with women, I'll tell you that. Not only does he talk about the praise of a woman in in Proverbs 31 and all this stuff, but know that in ancient literature in the Hebrews, uh, wisdom is always personified as a female. As a matter of fact, it is believed by many scholars that their view was in a relationship in a marriage, the women were the seed of wisdom. Amen. Yeah. Now I'm getting some amens. All right. All right. Praise God. (laughs) Yeah. Testify. That's right. Yeah. No, I I look at your marriage. I testify for you. Praise God. All right. So the bottom line is that God's view is very different than this guy's practical view, but even him, when he backs up, he even talks about it very, very differently. So we need to take it in context. But what do we take from this entire message? It's this. We must live on purpose. There are too many of us floating through life and we keep going, I don't know how I ended up here. Yeah, you do. Revisit it. Your decisions got you here. And we need to rethink how we're making decisions. We actually need to think through the ramifications of what we do now and what that's going to mean in the future. If you put everything on credit today, you're going to have to pay it off tomorrow. If you are mean and nasty to people today, you're not going to have any friends tomorrow. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we need to purposefully say, Lord, what are you building here? And how do I lean into that? And how do I align with your ways? Why do I, or how do I not just fight you on everything? How do I shift into your stream? Because you have a great purpose for me. You have a future and a hope for me. And you have wise principles for me to live by. We simply cannot live in ignorance any longer. We simply cannot just wander through life and hope we end up somewhere good. We need to purposefully follow the ways of the Lord that we might end up where he wants us to end up. Amen? Amen. All right. Praise God. Could I have the prayer team come on up as we close? Heavenly Father, I pray right now that whatever needs have come in the door in your beautiful children today, God, that you would empower the prayer team to meet 
those needs on your behalf. That, Lord, that you would use them as conduits, that you would use them as ambassadors of the kingdom, that they would be able to pray and dole out the gifts of heaven. I pray, Lord, that if someone needs just a listening ear, they would come to the right person up here that would listen deeply. The Lord, that if any of our family members here are struggling and need a touch, Father, I pray that that would happen. If any of us need healing, if any of us need emotional freedom, if any of us need addictions broken, if any of us, Lord, just need to know that you love us, would you call us forward that we might be met by you through your servants standing up here at the front? God, may none leave this place empty, but all leave full. I pray a blessing over my family here today. And I pray, God, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, that you would make them mighty and powerful. I pray, Lord, that you would stop their ears towards the things of this world and open up their ears towards the things of God. I pray, Lord, that you might open up our eyes and let the scales fall off, that we might be able to see your work and join in with you. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint us and empower us, that we are about to walk out into a week full of divine appointments where we're going to run into people and we are the minister i pray god that we might be able to be filled up in our hearts filled up with your grace so we can extend grace filled up with your love so we can give love and so lord i pray over my family right now all that can hear my voice and i pray god would you pour your favor out upon us would you lead us to the repentance so we can align with your ways and may you be present even more in our lives in jesus name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week.